and welcome to this, the 14th episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I'm your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And of course, this second series is brought to you thanks to the generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now, each week, we bring you these conversations and these chats absolutely free of charge. We've promised that we'll never, ever charge for this podcast. But of course, we are looking for you to put your money into Irish theatre. That's the whole ethos behind this podcast. It's to support, promote and celebrate all that's great about Irish theatre. And of course, the best way for you to support is just to go and very simply buy yourself some theatre tickets. It's the most direct way, it's the easiest way, and it's the most enjoyable way. So get out there and do it. And you know, if things are a little bit tight at the moment and tickets are a bit of a stretch, you maybe go and check out one of the crowdsourcing websites, the fundit.ies, the Indiegogos, all of those ones. There's often theatre projects over there looking for your support. Donations often start from as low as a fiver, and there are always great rewards in return for those donations. And do you know what? There's also an awful lot of ways you can support without even having to put in your hand in your pocket go and tell people about this podcast help us to get the word out about irish theater you get the word out about the podcast we talk about the shows we talk about the personalities we talk about the artists and it all gets out there go and tell people about this podcast in person over a coffee or a pint or a stroll along the beach um, of course you can always share the link as a facebook post or you can retweet the link on twitter do please go and subscribe to the podcast over on itunes and that's a huge help for us in terms of charging position and algorithms and all that good stuff um, but you know if you don't use iTunes and you're not on Apple these podcasts are of course streamable and available for direct download over at riseproductions.ie do please go back and listen to all the other episodes leave us a review over on iTunes or simply click to rate us on their five star rating system you can as always follow us on Facebook we are facebook.com forward slash Ireland, or you can follow us on Twitter we are at Rise Ireland. And so that brings us to our guest this week, only it's not our guest, it's our guests, plural, because we're here for our first uh, double bill, if you will, um, of series two. The last time we did this was with Grace and Shane from Theatre Club all the way back in season one. And so we've decided to do it again, because when you want to talk about double acts, they don't come much better than Jane Daly and Siobhan Burke of the Irish Theatre Institute. Jane and Siobhan have been so massively in influential in my career. Um, ITI has been absolutely a part of every single thing we've ever done with Rise, going right the way back to the very start with Fight Night. And they've been there effectively holding my hand through the last seven or eight years as we've gone through this whole thing, all the international touring, all the podcast stuff, every Arts Council application, all of it. Uh, Jane and Siobhan and the entire ITI family have been there supporting me. They are a phenomenal duo who have made a massive contribution to Irish theatre and to Irish life generally. Um, And I'm just a massive Massive, massive fan of both. And so, because they are that special, let's give them the platform they deserve. Let's get straight to it. Here they are. The brilliant Siobhan Burke and Jane Daly. The wonderful Jane Daly and Siobhan Burke. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having us, Angus. Let us start, as we do uh, each week, with going back to the very beginning. Jane, for you, when did 
it first occurred to you that you might be interested in a career in the world of theatre? Oh, when I realised that I did not have a vocation to be the secondary school teacher that I trained to be. Ah, yes. Um, so it, it was somewhat accidental, to be perfectly honest. Um, when, I, when I left college um, in 1983 uh, with my HDIP, um, I knew I didn't want to teach. I, I just knew that I couldn't work in that secondary school environment. It just was not conducive to the sort of person that I was. Schools were strange places for teenagers in those days. Um, and that summer when I was trying to work out what to do with the rest of my life, um, I had done a degree in history and classical studies and I thought I wanted to get into museum curation. Okay. And there was an opportunity that arose at that time. It was a five-month course. Um, it was an arts administration course funded by ANCO, which was the precursor of FOSS, um, and the Irish Museums Trust. This subsequently became the UCD Masters in Cultural Policy, so that's how long ago it is. <laughs> I did the first arts admin course. Um, and through that, I, I immersed myself for five months in theatre. It was all about... Uh, sorry, in the arts in general, it was all about site visits, people coming in to give classes, master classes, um, talking to people who were actually working in the arts. And I realised that actually it wasn't museum curatorship I wanted to. It was the excitement of theatre, live performance, that totally engaged me. Um, but I also knew that I was never the sort of person who was going to step on stage or direct a play or write a play. But I did know that I had good administrative skills. And at that time, I had a very good memory. I could remember everything. I was great <laughs> at making lists. And suddenly there was a profession emerging called arts administration. And that was it for me. And through the people I met on that uh, uh, arts admin course, I got my first job. And I've just kind of been on a roll ever since. I love it. It's fantastic. For you, Siobhan, when did it start? Um, similarly, um, and not until today I hadn't realised Jane actually did a H-dip. I too did a H-dip um, and realised, oh, I feel way too young to become a secondary school teacher. I went off to France and I came back from France within a year and registered in UCD to do a master's. And I also registered the first day I was on the master's to in with Dramsock. Okay. And in those years, there were two Americans called John Farrell and Bill Wirtz and they used to run acting workshops. And I got fully involved in that. And I met Anne Byrne and Sean McDermott, a whole pile of people through that. And I did shows in Dramsock. I acted in shows and I was like, while I was studying um, the rest of the time. And um, after I suppose, master's two years, and then I was working in UCD for the third year after that, and I realised um, doing the shows was, it was challenging. I played some very big parts, but what I realised about myself in that process was that um, I loved the rehearsal period. I absolutely adored it. Did um, Waiting for God to be one of the last big shows we did in Dremsock, directed by Cathy Leaney. And, um, um, but I found the performance um, previewing and opening nightmarish, and then within a few days, and I was going, I really don't have it 
to kind of come back and do the yeah. same thing every day. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. And I wasn't good enough. I, I mean, you really, really know this about yourself. I just wasn't good enough. Um, but I wasn't getting the buzz out of it. Yeah. So I was getting the buzz out of rehearsal because I just loved the, who was the character, mm. the creation character. It's like an analytical part of it. Yeah, it's intriguing because you're not the first person to say that to me. That if, I, I've had people say to me, if the business was just the rehearsal process, I, I would do this all day long. That, yeah. that creation, that discovery, yeah. that investigation... But it's all the extraneous stuff that goes along with it as an actor is yeah. a different I, beast. I also probably in my in my in that last year um, in UCD when I had the masters finished and I was working as a as a part time tutor there, I went to see a lot of shows around town, including seeing this kind of post college show, um, um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Jerry Stembridge and Pauline McLean as two main parts, and you're there going, they're your contemporaries, and Pauline was stunning. Yeah, she was truly stunning. Um, or I would have gone to see like lots of shows in, in Project, um, lots of shows in the festivals and in the dance festival. And you just become aware of there's a professional standard, there's people who are really talented. And people around me like Anne Byrne, you're kind of going, I'm not in her league, you know. You just know it. And, and what she, the buzz she was getting from it, you weren't getting. Yeah. So I started, I suppose, very gently to kind of move into um, organising and running and being the manager. Um, and so uh, Cathy Alini was setting up a summer company in Trinity and along with a pile of people, uh, Marie Tierney, Joe, a whole pile, Michael Murphy, a whole pile of people. We set off into UCD and did three shows in a company called All Exits Final. <laughs> and Cathy directed one of them. And so I was like the producer manager and I happened to strike gold in the first... Um, few days of it and then I actually managed to get a sponsor and a whole pile of things so it actually had it had a few bob to pay for sets and it did really well and while I was in UCD sorry in Trinity in in players running that company uh, for those few weeks I met Declan right Hughes and um and Lynn and the guys and they would have seen just how well the vibe was around the company how well we were doing and they asked me to get involved with them in a summer company and so I got involved with them with some company. We've had people on before talk about this kind of idea of the summer companies and coming in and and, yeah. and also the idea of kind of drum and players mm. being the fringe of the time. Yeah. What was what was the theatre ecosystem like at that stage? Did it feel vibrant and exciting? Did it feel on the edge of something or did it feel, you know, that there was the Abbey and the Gate and it was kind of from there on? Um I would say from '84 on, when when we when we set up Rough Magic, the mid years in that '84 to '90 were extraordinary years for theatre in absolutely extraordinary, in the sense that you had a whole range of amazing companies. The Passion Machine, led by Paul Mercer, John Sutton, Roddy Doyle, John Don, all those people. The, the vibe around them was extraordinary. The city was alive to theatre. Roddy Doyle was on the late late. Um, people queued around Dame Street to see plays. It was an amazing buzz around it. We did shows in the project um, in those early years, um, like Top Girls. All sorts of people came to see it. Um, you know, well-known people in Ireland were coming to see our shows. Um, in our first festival show in 85, uh, Gareth Fitzgerald, just Tisha Keeney's wife came. You know, mm -hmm. there was an incredible vibe. Um, but it wasn't just Rough Magic and Pash Machine. There was Wet Paint, which was Owen Rowe and Michelle and um, Hilary Fannin and a whole pile of people. Um, there was the early days of commotion. Um, there was Derek, Derek 
Um, there was Smock Alley, Derek Chapman, Derek Mark Chapman, Frawley, Jerry Walsh. Yeah, they were doing amazing yeah. work as well. There was yeah. just lots of companies, and as well as you had Phyllis Ryan with Gemini. Of course. You had, um, there was playwrights and actors led by Kevin McHugh. Yeah. There was Phyllis Barry Carson with Kite. Yeah. There was Gemini with Phyllis. Phyllis. And there was probably some others. Who were constantly well, there was going? The Oscar was the Oscar going as well. Very strong, um, doing amazing work in yeah, mine. Yeah. Um, so it, and it then was one or two outside Dublin, not many, but you had Theatre Unlimited in Kilkenny you with Maciek Wisniewski, and, and you had Theatre in, in Limerick with Terry Devon. Yeah, Ireland Theatre Company. Yeah. And you yeah. had Jerry Barnes's um, Cork Theatre Company. Mm. Yeah, Pat and you had Sharabank in the north. It yeah. was a very hopping scene. Now yeah. I have to ask a question. My recollection of the 80s is there wasn't a huge amount of money knocking around. Yeah. So, how did we have such a vibrant theatre scene? A, that people were able to go and make the work, but B, that people were able to go and see the work? Well, they didn't, they didn't have a lot of money. Um, I mean, you did a lot in Rough Magic. But were you doing work on shares at that stage in the beginning? We did some work on shares, but we actually got grant aid very early. Really? You've got to remember there were only about five venues around the country yeah. at that time. <laughs> there was Sheems of the Bell Table, the Hawkswell, the Everyman. Yeah. Um, and you split some of them. A couple of others. But um, th- there wasn't, like there were very few. Druid had started off in 1975 and yeah. they got a few bob from Board Falch at the time and then subsequently got some money from the Arts Council. Um, but there were very few others between seventy and the seventy five and the early eighties. Yeah. Until there was a bit of a boom in Dublin. Yeah. And I, people were very young. A lot of people were. I, I think you also young have to and just out of college. The other thing that happened, and we were too young to be part of it, but that other thing that happened was that um, the ITC. Yes. Was set up, and they had toured around Ireland, very, very, very effectively, and had done some amazing shows. Um, in the late in the seventies, mid to late seventies, and then by the time we get to the early eighties, mid eighties, there's a thing called the National Th- touring, touring, National Agents, touring Agency, yeah. which had a fund. So yeah. all of those companies I mentioned earlier were all could all apply to them for touring around Ireland, and that gave an extra boost. Yeah. So that and it was, that was well resourced. Okay. You were going out on the road for a month. You had to do five performances a week. Everybody was getting proper subsistence. Everybody was getting proper wages. Wow. And so that was a very yeah. different world. And the National Touring Agency, they had marketing support. They had a marketing officer. Yeah. So you you had this kind of backup behind it yeah. of uh, marketing support. So it was a National Touring Agency yeah. and lots of people toured under it yeah. at that time. Sorry, the other big company I forgot, which I've kind of possibly forgotten, um, I shouldn't have forgotten this, Field Day. Of course. Field Day were huge. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Field Day were huge, touring Ireland, and they did those incredible tours. Incredible tours with incredible cast of yeah. amazing work. And so it was very vibrant. I, you're, it's a good question, but how did everybody survive? I do know that some people feel that certainly there would have been years where people disappeared, the audiences were very small. And But maybe Jane's point is well made in that lots of companies like ourselves, we were doing work, obviously in the festival where you would get normally very good houses. But then throughout the year, um, we did manage to mostly get good houses. Though I do remember some shows where houses were very poor yeah um and i think because times are hard people didn't really have that much money 
Um, um, and ticket prices were very low, really, weren't they? Jack? Ticket prices, well, I suppose they were relative to the, the, the time. Yeah. 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 I mean, in those days, I remember I, at that time when Siobhan was in starting off with Rough Magic, I was working, I had just started work at the Dublin Theatre Festival in 1985, working with Michael Scott, uh, who was the artistic director at the time. And I always remember, like, my first wage packet was about £95. Mm. Um, and it was a fortune. Right. It was an absolute fortune at the time. And, mm. like, you weren't earning anything like that on your shares. <laughs> no, you still thought the, you were loaded. The, um, the, uh, we, we would have always done seasons where people were, were um, paid properly, or at least paid, paid equity minimum, but I think it was about £85 a week. So I suppose, Angus, just from t- thinking that from a, having told you about the touring agency, if you imagine that every year you got a tour, which would have been big part, so that meant guaranteed four good weeks, yeah. and then you get some grand tours, the rest of it, you could have a number of weeks where the money would be all right. Because you'd have a four-week rehearsal or a re-rehearsal mm. and a four-week tour, and then maybe put on something new. And in those years, we in Rough Metro just put those. Yeah. So for you... Were there a couple of companies before you headed west, or was it almost direct to Druid for you? Uh, no, um, I, I after the after the arts admin course that I I did, um, I worked the nineteen eighty four. I think it was was a the year there was no Dublin Theatre Festival. There was a gap. There was no festival in nineteen eighty four. Wow! And I got a job with the um, the great Mike Murphy uh, of uh, RTE. Uh, working as administrator on on a festival he set up called Contemporera, which was a one-off event in 1984. And uh, he was a great champion of mine, I have to say, and um, he kind of mentioned my name elsewhere after that event. Um, And I I got a job in the Dublin Theatre Festival where I stayed for two years. And after that, in 1986, I left Dublin and I went to work in Scotland, in Glasgow, uh, where I spent two years working on Mayfest, which is an international arts festival in Glasgow. Uh, it was a really vibrant time in Glasgow because it was um, the lead-up to Glasgow City of Culture in 1990. <clears throat> the Glasgow Garden Festival was on in 1988. Um, and there was it seemed like everything was happening in Glasgow. And there was a, a, a real, really dynamic atmosphere there because everybody thought, wow, wow Glasgow can actually do things where everybody's always looking to Edinburgh, but actually, it's this is kind of could be Glasgow's moment. So it was an extraordinary time. Those two, two just over two years that I spent in Glasgow working on a multidisciplinary arts festival. That's where I developed my love for contemporary dance, um, which um, I owned, we, at that time we had done contemporary dance theatre in Ireland, um, but there was very little contemporary dance, and I just remember thinking, wow, there's another art form that I that I also love. And the great thing about working in that festival was that there were um, Druid came over to the festival when I was there. Um, they were doing their production of Factory Girls, and I was working on the program side at the festival in Glasgow. And Druid came, and I got to Maureen Hughes, uh, a very good mutual friend of, of Siobhan's and mine. Um, Maureen was the administrator at Druid at the time, and we got to know each other through the arrangement of the tour when we got to Glasgow. Um, I loved the show, and I got to meet Marie, and Doreen Hepburn was in the show, and, oh, you know, fantastic people. And um, not long after that, uh, Jerome uh, Hines... Um, in mid-88, I think, 
Jerome decided he was going to uh, go to the Wexford Festival Opera and an opportunity arose in Galway. And I thought to myself, I, I wasn't really ready to go back to Ireland uh, because it was um, the build-up to 1990 in Glasgow and there were loads of opportunities. But Druid was in a very particular place at that time and I thought it, I couldn't miss my opportunity here. Um, I And I had said to somebody before, I, I nothing's going to get me back to Ireland unless something came up at Druid. Okay. And that's how it happened. And I, I at the rare age, the, the tender age of 27, I found myself as general manager in Druid taking over from Jerome Hines, which, believe me, was a really, <laughs> really hard act to follow. Um, and Jerome was incredibly generous uh, to me in terms of, you know, easing me into the job and the transition. And he told me he told me where all the skeletons were and what to watch out for. Um, and he just, you know, he built my confidence uh, great. He was he was really quite an extraordinary individual. And um, I then spent uh, eight very happy years working in Druid, producing work, new work, revivals of uh, extant plays, touring every highway and byway of the, of the country, um, and touring internationally. And um, while I left Druid in 1996, um, to work in a freelance capacity, I, I never could leave Galway. So I still live there. Tell me about how exciting that time was with Druid. Because as you say, it feels like the amount of work that was going on there and the, the varied thing of the big international tours, the local touring here, it must have been an incredibly exciting time to be there. Yeah, it was exciting and terrifying, you know, and um, I suppose it, being in Galway, you know, this was, this was before mobile phones and email. Um, this is where... You know, you felt so disconnected from the theatre community. I mean, nowadays, I think the community is is so connected with each other, both nationally and internationally, because the ease of communications. But in those days, um, you had to do things like you had to you had to drive to Dublin with photographs for the papers. You know, you you there was no such thing as email or faxing or JPEGing mm. and. You you would you would have a photo shoot. Emilia Steen, God bless her, used to get into the car, drive to Galway, do the photo sh- the production uh, shots, and often she would go back print. We would be f- like, how we even got to see the contact sheets like a hard copy of contact sheet, and you went through this process. So people were up and down the Galway Road all the time. Whereas Siobhan used to have the luxury of just running around to Delir Street and you know <laughs> dropping them in. As and of course, back in those days, the Galway Road wasn't the Galway Road Galway that we know and love now. <laughs> the Galway Road was not the Galway Road. But um, there were, it was incredibly exciting uh, being in, in Druid at the time. But there were times it felt very isolated. You, you felt, you know, it was hard to sometimes get people to get to Galway to review the shows. Um, there were some diehards that you knew would turn up at every single solitary show. One, of course, being Phelan Donlan, the mm. uh, drama officer of the Arts Council, uh, who was a, a fantastic mentor to both Siobhan and myself. Um, but it, 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 it was hard. It was, it was tough. But we had an extraordinary team in Galway. And then when companies like Rough Magic or Field Day um, or Playwrights and Actors were out on these NTA tours... It was like, 
wow, mm. you know. Other and members we would, of the tribe. Yeah, it was. And we'd have those extraordinary times where we'd go and see their work and we'd kind of hang out together and you felt really connected. And I suppose as where Siobhan and I started to get to know each mm. other a bit because we were contemporaries, but we were working on either sides of the mm. country. Remember, Galway in those days did not have the town hall. Right. So you were playing, we brought shows at Thai Vyrk. yeah. You yeah. rentals and the Thai yeah. And then all the shows, the jazz. Right? I, the jazz yeah. or, yeah, I mean, if you wanted to do a transfer, you know, if you and Druid, if we'd, if we'd a really good show, um, we did this amazing thing in 1992 um, under Melissa Stafford's direction, um, was a musical version of The Midnight Court, uh, the David Marcus version, um, uh, with the music uh, by Sean Tyrrell and an extraordinary uh, band of, of musicians. And it packed in a late night slot during the Galway Arts Festival. Um, so we brought it back to the Mercy Convent Hall about, I think the following March. And we put in a raked seating. Mm-hmm. We kind of fitted about 400 people into the Mercy Convent Hall. Because um, Galway always had amazing production crews. Okay. Mm. They, I mean, really, I can't tell you the, the likes of, you know, Morris Power and mm. Spud Murphy and Tony Colleen and Bernie Walsh, God rest him. And the, it was just you, anything was possible because the festival was doing everything mm. in sheds, fields. It, that's just was, mm. the, was the, everything was possible. Mm. And, um, but that was our transfer into the Mercy Convent Hall mm. and it packed and then it toured after that. And in terms of, kind of the disconnect from Dublin or feeling a little bit isolated is it strange to have felt that you were making traction internationally for some of those international tours but like so potentially even more connected outside the island than you were back to the capital well in my in my eight years in Druid um, we brought shows to Dublin I think four times just in eight years Um, we had twice we were in the Dublin Theatre Festival in the Gaiety with a play called Wild Harvest by Ken Burke uh, with Michalali, and we brought two pieces into the gate, Lovers' Meeting by Louis Dalton and At the Black Pig's Dyke, an amazing piece written by Vincent Woods, that we went into the gate on a guarantee basis into the gate. And then, um, gosh, that it might be three. Right. It might have been three shows while... We were also doing Sydney, Toronto, four week, <laughs> four week run in London, Skibbereen, you know, Balnamore. It's it was yeah, Dublin. I think for us at the time, it, it was a company that was just rooted in a touring ethos, um, and Dublin was part of our touring, but not necessarily. It didn't have to be the priority anymore because the company before I arrived had done that extraordinary Murphy. Uh, you know, palette of work, and had had broken that international thing. So the pressure was off a little bit, um, but it's kind of interesting now. I I look at artists now working in Galway, and to be honest, I think they're still very isolated. Right. Because there is a disconnect. Mm. Everything happens in Dublin. Yeah. And while communications are better, the kind of funding opportunities, the networking, mm. the producing opportunities mm. are really not as. Um, they're, they're not as, as abundant yeah. as they are. So. Siobhan, th- those early days of Rough Magic, anyone who was around that time speaks of it as the most indescribable energy mm. knocking around, both in terms of the work that was being put on stage, but also for the audiences engaging mm. with it, that it felt like an incredible breath of fresh air and a whole new 
type of theatre being brought mm. to Dublin. Is that fair to say? And how exciting was it to be at the forefront of it? It, it was. It was. Um, it was really exciting, and there was an extraordinary amount of energy, and we did work really hard. Um, the first seven years would have been characterised as a company who did Irish um, premieres of British and American plays with some contemporary classics, uh, Irish classics in the, in the mix. Um, and so in those years, we would have had visits from the likes of Jim Cartwright and Herb Brinton, um, Cummings and Stuart Parker, of course, coming to Dublin and the buzz around those individuals and, and also Carol Churchill. Um, uh, the buzz around those individuals and their writing and what was going on was quite extraordinary. Um, but then the company, for the second seven years, so if the first seven was the Irish Premiers of British and American Plays, the second seven years were, was new writing. And in the second seven years, we did Edinburgh start in 1990. And then in 91, to, oh, for about five years, we went to London every year to new writing houses. And so we were doing a mix of going to London with the hits from the previous year in Dublin. And we got, I think in 92, we got, or 90, sorry, yeah, 92 or 93, we got the Time Out Best Newcomer in London for Digging for Fire and Love in a Bottle. Um, we had right through from 90 on, we had a fabulous production of Lady Windmere's Fan that toured everywhere around Ireland. And it was just really, and lots of different actors came in and played it, played it over the years. It became just our, like our cash cow. We could take it out on the road. Um, at the drop of a hat, and then we we built a good relationship with the Donmar, and we brought two shows there, um, and we of course a very strong relationship with the Bush and the Hampstead, and so you there was that call to London, and um, what that kind of meant was what was interesting was that besides playing a project and the gaiety and the Olympia, um, we once brought a show to the Peacock, which was. Um, John Le Kelly's play about the father came yes. back and toured into the Peacock having been on in Edinburgh. But there was no conversation with the Abbey or the Peacock or the Gate. You were just in this other place. Okay. And being in this other place meant you went on the road and you championed new writing and um, and you worked with the project. I mean, that was kind of the vibe. And in terms of those kind of London transfers, mm. I mean, have, you say have, for the first seven years been taking these great British plays that mm. weren't being showcased here mm. always and, and bringing them to an Irish audience. And I, I suppose also letting Irish actors play those parts yes, and Irish directors absolutely. and designers tackle them. Absolutely. But then to flip it and mm. then say, okay, well, thanks for showing us what yeah. you have. Here's what we yeah. have. And being able to stand on your own two feet at the bush or the yeah. dog or whatever must have been exciting as well. Is there anything that compares to that now in terms of Irish companies touring to the UK? I don't know that there is. Um... So I think you have to remember as well that in the 90s, leading up to 95, 6 and 7 and 8, when we had the Good Friday Agreement, the first, the first ceasefire in the Good Friday Agreement, there was uh, an ambition right throughout the 90s at government level for there to be east, west, north, south, more cooperation on the island and uh, almost a virgin of desperation for there to be good communications. So in those years, in those early 90s years, there was a fabulous woman um, ambassador here for the... Um, in the British Embassy, um, and she would have gone to see all the shows in 95. She went to everything, so she would have come to see us. You suddenly you're doing work where, at, a, at an ambassador level, somebody's coming to see it, and when workers come to the festival, she would host dinners, and we'd all get to meet cheek by jowl, whoever was in town, because they were delighted. They believed culture could make a difference. Yeah. So that when we brought Pentecost into the Dunmore Warehouse in 96, it was kind of phenomenal. It was a summer slot which really shouldn't have worked, but we were able to persuade Karen Newling and Sam Mendes to take it. Um, it was really, it was 
reviewed very well and I got these amazing opinion pieces okay. which you never get mm-hmm. um, Mary Holland wrote one of them but there were others in the Times some other people about the importance of this play at this moment and so there was a desire for there to be connections and you know those as often happens now and we we had our moment then the Irish Embassy would host the big lunch where the British ambassador to Ireland she came and we were all there and there was a moment acknowledging them, we really want this to work mm. and so you could see culture the soft side the soft power of yeah. culture I, I feel that was quite strong in those years and mm. that that <clears throat> there's a, a guy called Geoffrey Keating who Jane, Jane and I both know who works in the Department of Foreign Affairs he would have um, been asked at a diplomatic level um, and he wrote some really interesting papers on Irish writing and Irish work that was seen in England and why it was being seen and mm. so you, there was an interest in that mm. also quite honestly I think we felt we needed to make it there and get these reviews, strong reviews in, in UK papers to be taken seriously. Really? Mm. Oh, absolutely. To actually get in on the funding thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and we, this is in the context where we had a very strong um, Arts Council supporter in Phelan Donlan, um, supporter of the work, supporter of new writing and council members, but it was very hard to get in, as it, as it still is very hard to get yeah. in. Nothing has changed in that regard. Yeah. Nothing it, has changed. It, that's exactly, the, you know, that's just a very tough journey. It's funny in the way that we, we in Galway were struggling to get the national reviewers to Galway, even though it was Druid. Mm. For us, getting the reviews in the national paper was crucial mm. um, for those reasons mm. in terms of uh, funding agencies and that but equally, then for the companies in Dublin they needed to get f- to get the reviews out of Dublin mm. to be recognised yeah. there and it's funny when Siobhan's talking there about London and the Good Friday Agreement and that, that period of time it reminds me that um, one of the big things that Druid undertook to do at that time we were we were doing an enormous amount of unusual rural touring but we, we hadn't toured into Northern Ireland and we managed to broker a, a relationship mm. with the Arts Council of Northern Ireland through Phelan's counterpart mm. there, a man called Dennis Smith, where we secured funding for North-South touring. Mm. And that really opened things up, but it presented, it presented a lot of um, issues that we, working in the theatre in the South, didn't recognise when touring into the mm. north and the sensitivities and remember field day was doing the opposite mm. Mm. field day was touring throughout the north and automatically touring in the south and druid was trying to do the same the other way around um, but sometimes our material was um somewhat sensitive so for example uh, i remember one extraordinary evening bringing a, a production a fantastic production actually of carthaginians to derry um, the, the derry premiere of, of frank mcginnis's carthaginians and um, all of the cars parked, the audience's cars all parked around the streets, around the Rialto as it was in Derry at the time, all were ticketed, in parking tickets. Every single solitary car was ticketed. And, you know, it was primarily, you know, nationalist nationalist audiences and people were in uproar. And we went back another time to... Derry with Vincent's play at the Black Pig's Dyke and um, um, masked people um, stormed the stage you know it, again it was a play that dealt with a, a Northern Irish love story in 1921 oh. or two but it was terrifying and actors we occasionally had an actor who 
uh, felt unable to tour into Northern Ireland at that time. Wow. But the, the respective people in the arts councils were really trying mm. to use theatre in the way in the way Field Day was doing mm. it this way, mm. to try and get more mm. work into Northern Ireland. I don't know, did we did, Magic, we did, yeah. we went a few times to Derry, and do you remember Derry City of Culture, Jim, we both had shows. Um, impact, was it? Or there was a festival. In the Playhouse, Derry, we did yes, that. Yes, that's yeah. right. That's and then right. We, we, we brought, I think it was, Lydia Mindoris Fan into the Lyric, um, and we did a lot of shows in Coleraine. Yeah, there were There were a number of places where you could where mm. work with tour regulars. Yeah. It's funny the cross border thing is still an issue. I think now it's something that we've worked really hard on. That in each of the tours mm. we've tried to get across the border because mm. it seems mad that you know we can that, that rise had been to Mayfesto in Glasgow yeah. Yeah. before it had been to the Lyric. But yeah. uh, you know, but, yeah. you know, we're so, we're solidly working on that now. Mm. Um, and but it's an interesting one. Think it might even get harder. Well, there you go yeah. yeah with Brexit and everything looming yeah. down the track yeah. um, I have to ask given that you were both were clearly taking over the world at your respective companies what in the name of God possessed you both to then leave and go freelance <laughs> um, well for me um, it was it, it was just it, I was compelled to do it um, I I was I left Druid Two days, I handed in my resignation at Druid <clears throat> two days after the world premiere of The Beauty Queen of Linan <laughs> and, the, and the official opening of the Town Hall Theatre. Um, you were there long enough to see since the West End, though, Jim. I was there, uh, yes, yeah. Well, actually, uh, to the Royal Court upstairs, Royal Court, yes, yeah, so. yeah. I like to leave other people, you know, to take the glory. <laughs> but um, it was, you know, to be perfectly honest, Angus, it was, um, I'd done 36 shows in Druid in eight years because um, at that time we were we were turning around shows we were doing four productions a year and we were generally doing three shows during the Galway Arts Festival a lunchtime an evening and a late night uh, we were touring nationally and internationally and um, I, I just remember standing there on the opening night of the Beauty Queen of Linan thinking it can't actually get better than this mm. going and on top and yeah, and I thought I'm, whatever, I was 33, I think. And I thought, I've got to do something else. And I I gave up my really badly paid job in Druid. <laughs> and um, I went freelance. Wow. And uh, that was 22 years ago. And then, of course, in the interim, Siobhan and I collided and started oh. something else. <laughs> um Talk to me then about the origins of at that stage theatre shop. Am I right? Yes. Is that the is that the earliest incarnation of it? Yeah, yeah. Theatre shop started in I think ninety three. Yeah, in ninety three, and it was in response to the fact that having taken so much work from Rough Magic to London, um, I was became acutely aware the presenters were actually showing up in Dublin in the Dublin Theatre Festival to see shows. And they were because com- they were coming to see me, right. and then I was bumping into people on the street because you'd had the London outings, and I thought this is really mad. I, there was a very strong independent scene, and I really, really believed um, that there were opportunities for everybody. If if the work was seen by these presenters, the world was a very big place. We weren't in competition outside of here. Um, it could all it, it should really work so we can complement each other. So the first outing of it, I actually first tried to persuade the festival to do it. And they said they were under-resourced. So in the end, the encouragement of uh, Annette Clancy, I decided to try to do it myself. And I booked 
um, a room in what was then the Royal Dublin's Dublin uh, Hotel. Hotel. And the very first pick the day, Ted and Beyond at this time, had a structure which involved one-on-one meetings and panel discussions and a lunch and all that. Um, and the, one of the presenters who showed up that year was um, Mary Ellen Van Kong from the Festival des Amériques. She just happened to be in town, so she was proof positive of what I'd always thought that people were showing up. And it was um, a small ish gathering, um, probably no more than, I suppose, 30 or 40 people by the end of the day, stage, and we had a round circle conversation at the end. And one or two people did say things like, Why are you doing this? And I came back going, I'm doing this because I think there's opportunities for all of us here to get out of here, to get more work, to make that bit extra, to get more out of your show. The kinds of things I still believe in really strongly, that you have the show, if you get it out on the road, get it out of Ireland, get those invitations, get support from what was then uh, the precursor, the pre, um, precursor, but the, uh, the Cultural Relations Committee used to fund shows to tour abroad. Uh, and that's how it started. And then for 93 to probably 98 or 99 um, it, it ran as being a one day and it started then to develop a little programme which became a booklet which became a, a directory and we ended up then having handbooks and also people worked with me on, on those early years people like Declan Gorman and Martin Monroe and Maura O'Keefe and like a whole pile of great people used to run the day and um, I ran it out of the rough magic offices while I was there and then took up another office for once I left. I suppose I just believed in it. Mm. Um, I believed things was important. And then when Jane and myself decided to join forces and to con- work in theatre shop, we developed the programme. And one of the things that emerged from doing the brochures and booklets was we were listing the companies and we were listing their shows. And we completely both of us were really committed to new writing. So we wanted there to be information. How do you, how do you get um, your hands on the rights? So that is actually the kind of the genesis of what became the Playout Tree project. And that was a huge part of what we did. Yeah, it is, yeah, 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 As As you now look at the sweep of the work and the supports of what has gone on to become Irish Theatre Institute, from Six in the Attic to the Playography to Show in a mm. Bag, which is you know taken over the world. Mm. Um, as you look back at all that, what do you think have been the biggest challenges along the way, and what are you most proud of? I know I promise no hard questions. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I would just say there are different phases in theatre show, which then became ITI. So up until the recession, we were an organisation with a really strong program that of work that we generated, which was playography, handbooks, irishtheatre.ie, websites, annual events and showcasing, going abroad, promoting, promoting Irish work, being on stands. With the recession and the, and the literally the imploding of the production company Come model, on, yeah. we then developed a whole suite of services and supports mm. for the independent artist. And I think we're both really proud of that one. Yeah, the in, work yeah. for the independent artist it's we think it has value we believe it has value we get positive feedback from people that it has value and we really want to make a difference to the making of work mm. i think the fact that we both had spent so long in the business of making work mm. and producing work uh, for our respective companies that when when the the company model it basically it disappeared for the most part you know as we always use the quote from 27 regularly funded companies or annually funded in 19 2008 
dropping to nine in 2017, you realise that the phone isn't ringing for people anymore. And how are people going to earn a living? How are they going to sustain themselves? Mm. And you you just imagine things into being to to recognise what might people need, but also talking to people and listening to people whose companies have been, whose where funding has been um, removed and saying, now what do I do? Mm. So I think um, it was, we were able to bring our own experience to bear. And I think in in some ways, the fact that we had both left our Mm. jobs we kind of realised the sharp end, having done that. And I think it's probably useful to say as well that we still we still apply a very lean model here in ITI in the fact that Siobhan and I share the one job. Mm. We, we, we're not two jobs, we're mm. one job. And the, the rationale behind that is we have different skills and we uh, they complement each other and then there are things that we work really well together in, in certain areas so we're always about trying to maximise resources um, we're proud of loads of stuff absolutely loads so sure, we're amazingly proud of you our first, <laughs> one of our first shows in a bag um, oh you yeah know, and gosh I remember that so well it seems to me that it was an incredibly astute initiative to roll out at the time mm. but I mean I I shouted from every rooftop I possibly can every single thing that Rise Productions has ever done over the last seven and a half years you guys have been absolutely involved with start to finish every single show from the podcast through like showing a bag to start it off with um, and then the supports for games and the games tour and at mm. the Ford and everything we've done has been done mm. with the support and backing of you guys and without question it wouldn't have happened at all and indeed wouldn't have happened to the kind of level it has without the support structures that were on offer from here. I think, you know, and it's, 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 it's really fantastic to hear that because that, that kind of thing really encourages you to kind of keep going and keep going. And I think one thing that the recession did and made us realise, not just us, but partnership, mm. resource sharing, working with mm. each other. I mean, Shona Bag is, is a combination of three partners with Fish Amble, the new play company, the Dublin Fringe and ourselves. None of us are in competition with each other. We all yeah. complement each other. And at the heart of it is creating opportunities for artists. And I suppose, you know, that's, that's why we get out of bed in the morning. You know, we don't get the 10,000 euro a day for doing it. But you get out of bed in the morning because you realise there is so much more to do. Mm. And um, I was in danger of uh, quoting Bertie Ahern there. Perish <laughs> <laughs> um, the thought. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think in terms of what we're proud of, I think what we're proud of in some extent, and Siobhan can correct me, is surviving. Mm. Um, surviving and thriving. And that's down to the artists who've trusted us and the people that we work with and the partners that we work with. But um, things are really tough for people, really, really tough. And we recognise that you, you, there's no room for complacency. Hmm. You have to keep going. And artists need to earn a fair and equitable living. Mm. Um, and we just need to, we need to keep imagining structures and systems and schemes and supports that are going to support the making of really good work. And as a small arts organisation, we've had very good boards. Right. We've had good chairs. Um, yeah, Fergus yeah. Lillian was our first chair when it was really quite an informal, you could say an informal setup, but he actually, we did have the meetings, we did run it properly. And then um, Tamber Dillon, an American who came from BAM, she was a chair for a short while. Dermot McLaughlin, 
um, is excellent chair and Katrina Crow has been with us 10 years. So we've been very fortunate that the chairs and the boards have been very supportive of us and very supportive of our work and very supportive of the pair of us as individuals. Mm, mm. And that makes a difference that you feel that you're working with them with, you know, supporters. I have to ask, the double act seems to be incredibly successful and, har <laughs> and, and harmonious, if I may add. Um, I wonder why you two think it works as well as it does. And also, uh, to ask the open question, what do you think is the one characteristic of each other that complements, that, that's oh, the one thing dear. that you couldn't do without? Gosh. Don't know if we've actually ever analysed that, have you know, Jane? One thing. We don't talk to each other like that, sure. We don't no. give away we don't give away too much. No. I um it's it's a very good question. Um and you know, in some ways it's kind of indefinable for right. me. Mm. Um I in my career I think I have been very, very lucky to um Siobhan would use the, 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 the phrase, you know, find find my tribe or, mm. you know, find that. I when I worked, you know, when I worked in the Dublin Theatre Festival, there was a great little team of people there, and we were all learning mm. stuff. And I knew nothing, but my God, did Michael Scott teach me about contemporary European theatre, mm. um, for which I am, you know, indebted. Um, in Druid, there was an extraordinary dynamic. There was a complementarity of skills. I first met Siobhan in 1984 when she was flyering for. <laughs> Contemporary um, sexual diversity in Chicago and decadence yeah. with her bicycle with mm. the basket on the front, which people will yeah. know. And um, I was working in Contemporary this this one-off festival, and our our paths have all to have always worked in parallel. I always admired what Siobhan did. I think Siobhan was probably you know a producer in the real sense of the word at that time when. There was no such thing as a producer. Really, they were general managers and company administrators and that. Um, and I would go to see all of the Rough Magic uh, work where, you know, I'd get try to get them to see it. Um, and I think what we realised um, working in kind of respective companies is that we were doing similar jobs. We were necessarily doing them in different ways and we had different experiences and that we have a complement a complementary set of skills mm. Um, fundamentally, I think we we sometimes say, you know, here we are at our you know advanced our advanced years, and we won't be retiring anytime soon. Very me. glad to hear it. Well, uh, neither of us will be doing that, but um, we do sometimes say, I wish we didn't care so much. Mm. But it's it just you're just compelled to do it. Um, my biggest biggest problem with Siobhan <laughs> okay, shots fired, um, is um, stopping or having too many ideas. Wow. Yeah. So she <laughs> That's all, a happy complaint. Yeah. Oh, so, and then we filter out we filter them out and we kind of say, Okay, now there's an interesting thing and then we put our heads together and work it out and then the others go onto the back burner for five, ten years down the road. And I do have ideas of my own at times, but um abundance. And for you? Um what I, what I think about Jane and I and our relationship all these years is I think there's an incredible level of respect and there's an incredible level of trust. I think we would trust each other professionally in terms of choices and in terms of commitments and in, 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 choice, choice, in terms of choice of work and, and the kinds of relationship we set up for, this, for ITI. Um, we, we, we really do complement each other 
in that we we obviously as you're gathering from what Jane has just said, we're we're very different people. And my, I come very much from like an independent sector. I come from people from the early days of Rough Magic, which was people getting together, working collectively, cooperatively to make work. And I would have had in the past a very strong relationship with, let's say, with Lynn mm. from my 14 years in Rough Magic, where we would have worked really well together. Now, not every moment of it would have been, you know, you're always going to have tensions, but it was always very productive. Well, there was no bad feelings, no negative atmosphere. And we both would be very strong proponents of that. There's a warm atmosphere here. Mm -hmm. We respect people. We want it to be conducive to making work. We both really believe that and we share mm -hmm. that. And in our dealings with, with each other and with the others who are here, that's what we want. We want that, don't we? want yeah. this kind of mutual respect and trust and um, admiration, actually. You know, there is an admiration. As you look ahead, medium term, say, the next five years, with the kind of movements happening at the Arts Council towards more regular funding and more what I would describe as sustainable funding models rather than project by project. How do you see the industry, the business, the theatre ecosystem in Ireland developing over the next few years and are you in any way optimistic? Question mark. Mm. <laughs> um, I think it's early days in terms of what the impact um, of new funding structures in the Arts Council will have because until the budget uh, improves dramatically it's the same money being distributed in different ways yeah. um, <clears throat> and there isn't enough and it's not always getting to the right um, places um, and the right people. Um, I, I'm always optimistic you know, I think, uh, I, I actually do, I, pers I, I trained myself out of pessimism uh, in my 30s to become an optimist. And um, I think as well, it's, you know, it's one of the things, of, you know, working with Siobhan and this, and the other people that work in this organisation that have uh, in the past and now, and, you know, name-checking people like Paula Shields and Jen Coppinger and Claire O'Neill and Caroline Williams and uh, Eva Sanger, my god they're all women we've yeah. just looked at our gender balance um, Elaine, Elaine Donnelly Lachlan, Lachlan. Oh, Lachlan. Lachlan. and Peter Crawley um, and Catherine Murphy and people we um, we believe that you you can there's always more to do there's always more to do um, and I, I I'm on, in a bit of a wait and see thing around the impact of the new funding schemes. I also think we need to get to a point where we're not relying entirely on a subsidy from the Arts Council. I think, you know, greater relationships with other agencies and showing that the arts is not a silo, but that we actually have the capacity to work across government departments, across agencies. Um, and I think that's something that I learned on the work I did on the Galway 2020 bid for European Capital of Culture, that culture is a wide and diverse um, thing that we all share um, and that, that we need to find ways in which we, we diversify in terms of what we do so that theatre as an art, as a cultural offering is at the heart of our own being, our, our sense of ourselves as citizens. So I think that I think there's always a huge amount of work to do, and there'll be a few things cooking away mm -hmm. up our sleeves. But um, 
in terms of the standard funding structures, I'm I'm in a I'm waiting to see evidence really. I I would say that um you know Elaine Donnelly, our general manager now, she would spend a lot of her time here helping people make applications. You know this I'm only too well. And so and Jane and I do loads of meetings with people in advance, helping them prep and have prep their applications, and then you're trying to step one take a step back from that and talk to artists and say let this not just be about applications for funding let this what it is you want to achieve enabling people to take some control over their lives and their work and then applying at the appropriate time for the funding because you've actually made a plan and you hope this works and you've you've done all this angles you know so you know what i mean but my point to bring it up is that there are a huge number of individuals out there who are not equipped to write a funding application yeah and if maybe we just need to dream up some other ways of actually in which we can give out some of the monies um, without requiring everybody who applies for funding to have to go through the 30 pages with all the support and documentation and all the stress of it and maybe not every piece of work needs to have that kind of level of rigour around the paperwork um, and so I suppose I'm not saying that you should be giving up money out willy-nilly but I do think that some, some um, work could be enabled with smaller amounts of money, seed money, and that then people can tease out ideas because there are a lot of individuals in the absence of any kind of company structure who, who are completely underqualified and are going to put a lot of effort into making applications, even with our support, because we can't write the application. Mm. We can give yeah. you guidance. And so I suppose in terms of looking at the future, I, I do believe that that's an area we need to stay very close to and be really nimble on so we can respond to the changes in the funding programmes and also respond to the needs of the of artists. Because there are very few producers out there. There are very few individuals who are going to take it on. You're doing loads more producing. And, you know, maybe you will take on a stable of artists and they will be yours. But there aren't very many people like that, Angus. Mm. You know, there aren't people who, who are happy to move between being the artist to being the, the producer, producer with with um, a list of clients, yeah. like running your own like mini agency of work, you know, being like an agent or a manager for people, and there aren't that many people who actually have the skill to really do the budgets. Um, and very few artists can really manage the money. Now, I'm not saying, of course, there are lots of people who are pure exceptions to the rule who are well able to manage the money, but for a lot of people, the budgeting end of it can be very challenging. So it's just in terms of our resources. So for the future. I would hope that some of these things would, some of the structures, um, maybe, I won't say simplify, but there may be some new initiatives that would allow smaller amounts of money, by that I mean the under 10,000, sure. to come out to the sector with less paperwork. Mm. And on the basis of maybe people should be brought in to literally stand in front of a panel and pitch for it. Yeah. Yeah. And pitch. And then you go, great. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, for these smaller amounts of money, as opposed to asking people to spend three weeks of their lives sitting in front of a computer with a form that they can't manage, um, with formatting they're unable to, 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 to care for, <coughs> and spend all their time you know, trying to articulate what it is they're doing. So maybe it would be, you know, say, well, we are a, a performing, we're in the performing arts, and maybe it should be done more by interview, or some other way. But I do think some of the, you know, I would be optimistic for the future, because I think there's an incredible bunch of artists out there extraordinary bunch of people out there um, and we see them in so many of our schemes and the mm. shows we're going to and the Fringe and the Theatre so there are fabulous people out there but uh, sometimes it would be it would be satisfying to see that the actual effort in getting the money didn't topple 
the exercises. I mean, in the sense that you were putting so much effort into getting the money, um, that you were you were maybe not you were undercooked in terms of actually doing the production. That the hardest part is getting the money, which it should never be. <laughs> well, the good news is that whatever is coming down the tracks, at least we know that you two will still be here fighting our corner <laughs> and making the world a better place. Schwarberg and Jane Daly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And indeed, thank you for the last seven and a half years. Without you two, I certainly wouldn't be here. It's an honour to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank Angus. You, Angus. <laughs> seven year itch, Angus. <laughs> So there you have it, the brilliant Jane and Siobhan. So very delighted to have them on the podcast after all these years and all their incredible, phenomenal support to me. And I think that conversation will give you a real insight and a glimpse into just how phenomenal uh, a double act they are. What a great pairing they are. So well matched, so brilliantly complementing each other's skill sets. I'm just, like I said, I'm a massive, massive fan. I can't get enough of them. I think they're fantastic. Long may they continue. And so that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of theatrical goings on around the country. At the Abbey, we have Swan Lake, Lucknahala from Chakdausa and the brilliant Michael Keegan Dolan. Um, at the Gate, they have a look back in anger. At the Gate, there continue with John B. Keane's Sive and then at the new theatre after the end is still running there with starring the brilliant Maria Guyver and Paul Livingston um, at Smock Alley they've all the seen and heard shows coming up um, and one that I'll be checking out there is Curse of the Toothless One by the brilliant Kevin C. Olihan who I'm a massive fan of I'll be checking that out in due course um, at the Civic Theatre we have We Don't Know What's Buried Here from Grace Dias that's definitely going to be worth checking out um, at the Lear Academy they have Dalliance and La Ronde in a double bill there really looking forward to seeing both of those shows The Viking in Clontarf has Des Kyo in The Love Hungry Farmer and at the Dalman Theatre it's from Under the Bed which has been going down an absolute storm Bewley's still has Looking Deadly well worth checking out and then at Project Art Centre in Temple Bar Scorch is coming which has wowed audiences all around the world and of course they also have the world premiere of Marco Rowe's new play The Approach from the all-conquering landmark production starring the brilliant Cathy Belton, Dervla Crotty and Ashling O'Sullivan. Uh, Silent, the show that keeps on going, is coming to the pavilion. If by any chance you're one of the few people on the island who haven't seen it yet, do go out of your way to check it out. Pat Kinnevan is a master. Then as we head south to the Everyman in Cork, they have the gardener and someone who'll watch over me. Um, heading west to the town hall in Galway, they also have someone who'll watch over me because it's awful. obviously it's out on tour at the moment. Uh, and they also have the great push there at the lime tree in Limerick the importance of being Oscar and the constant wife and up north in Lyric in Belfast it's murder of crows and also they have I'll tell me ma so that is us that's episode 14 in the books we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers but in the meantime this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. Bye.